Welcome back to the Gay 15 interview. I'm Andy and your host for this monthly discussion with experts and amazing guests from throughout our Homeland Security community. This is the fourth of our four Gay 15 monthly podcasts, which include our risk roundtable discussion, Jen Walker is a cybersecurity evangelist, and Dave Pounder's Nerd Out, where this month he gave his now annual two-thirds of the year awards. So I don't really know what Dave's doing most of the time, but check it out. It was a fun discussion, and he talked about some really important topics in that. Please subscribe and listen and learn more about the threats and risks facing us every day. So now, welcome to the August edition of the Gate 15 Interview. I'm humbled to speak with a great leader and a very welcome guest to this podcast, Mr. William Flynn. Bill, I'm going to try not to say sir too many times, but old habits are hard to break. So welcome back, Bill, and thank you for taking time out to speak with me today. I'm really grateful for it. Um, let me let me start a little bit of background. I'll, I'll turn things over to you. Uh, we, we first met back in 2007 when you were helping to lead what has now become CISA, but you had quite a great career well before that. So again, welcome. I'm glad you're here. And as you get started, would you mind me taking a moment to give us some of your background, maybe some highlights, some of your favorite moments and achievements while you were there at DHS? Yeah, of course. And thanks, Andy, very much. Great to uh, connect with you. And um and be part of this podcast and in uh, the audience and uh, and the uh, topics that are so uh, so important to our security community. So really happy and, and pleased to be with you. Thank you sir. Um, I've been blessed. You know, I've I've worked with three great organizations uh, in the course of uh, my career. Started out with the United States Navy, stuck with that in in, uh, in my Naval Reserve capacity in in May '06. Um, did, did a number of um, deployments around the world, including the Middle East. Um, I had a parallel career, 24 years with New York City Police Department. Um, obviously, was there on 9-11, uh, dealt with the challenges and, and difficulties of uh, reconstituting um, New York City, the government, um, the, the NYPD, and in the aftermath of, you know, being, you know, confronted with terrorism at our front door. And then... Um, in 2003, you know, kind of got the uh, recruitment issue with uh, DHS and, and move over to uh, Department of Homeland Security. So that was a, a nascent, just relatively new uh, agency, stood up in March of uh, 2003 officially. And uh, I joined them, uh, you know, at the end of that calendar year. So I'm proud to be a, a plank owner and part of that initial crew um, and, and got to work with some really, truly great people, learned a lot including people like yourself, um, you know, I, I had some, some tremendous opportunities there. <clears throat> you know, being in at the front door uh, with no playbook gave us um, an opportunity to really build uh, some great programs. Certainly a lot of challenges in doing that. Um, but I think some of those great programs have been sustainable and they have, you know, continued to provide a, um, a national impact on mitigating risk and enhancing security and resilience uh, across our country. And, and I'm referring to programs like the Protective Security Advisor Program. We deployed security experts across the country in key cities and states. The Office for Bombing Prevention that has done you know, great work in partnership with the FBI and mitigating the threat of, of uh, improvised explosive devices. You know, helping build resilience with programs like the Regional Resiliency Assessment, the RAP program. Right responding to real world events like Katrina, Super Storm Standy, the Boston Marathon bombing, um, you know, wearing a, a collateral duty hat at NATO where I was um, assigned to, uh, to chair a committee there looking at emergency management and critical infrastructure issues for NATO partners. Being at the White House uh, on a task force following the tragic Sandy Hook shooting of the elementary school there in 2012. And then, you know, being involved in so many important security events uh, that have taken place over the years, you know, the NSSEs, uh, the CR1 events like the Super Bowl, um, you know, all of those were, were really important, challenging and, and fulfilling opportunities uh, that I had at DHS. And I look back with great pride uh, with the men and women that I had an opportunity to work with and some of the accomplishments we were able to make. You know, the satisfaction of just being there with no playbook and, you know, the realization coming to DHS that, you know, I was no longer the 800 pound gorilla in the room in New York City when NYPD kind of showed up, you know, people kind of fell in step and followed 
you know, working in the federal government, you know, it was a little bit of a shock that, you know, we're DHS, we're here to, you know, secure the country and, and it really was hurting cats and, and getting, you know, all the interagency partners, you know, on board and building consensus. And um, while at first I found that, you know, a little disconcerting and challenging, in the long run, it really was the right way to do things. You really have to build those partnerships and the consensus, not only with the federal partners, but your state and local, and, and most importantly, your private sector partners as well. So it was a great run. I'll tell you, sir, well, it's, the run continues. I mean, you're still doing a lot. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. But I mean, you've had an amazing career. I was, I was an Army guy. Um, I appreciate your Navy service. I had the interesting experience of working right, the Navy submarine commander uh, while serving in Afghanistan. And, and it was a very new environment for him. You know, he was used to being on a ship that was a nuclear weapon floating around the ocean and uh, trying to get him to understand how the army operated and trying to respect his leadership style. It was a fun clash of, uh, of, of personalities there, but thank you for your service there. Certainly with 9-11, uh, you know, everything you did at NYPD, that's, that's a huge mission. And with DHS, I had a chance to serve underneath your leadership, to work in some of those real world responses, to work with some of the programs that you mentioned both when I was with you there at DHS and when I left and, and, and as a private sector partner and some really great initiatives. We talked about that playbook that didn't exist. And you look back now and you were doing things and, and promoting programs that still exist today that were brand new. I mean, I think about the PSA program that you mentioned, putting you know, federal operatives in the field to connect with the private sector. That was, that's, like, that's brand new at the time. Nobody was thinking about that. Nobody was going to ask probably one of the greatest successes in my mind the DHS has today, you know, so your leadership there is pretty remarkable, right, with no, no real guidance, and like I said, no playbook, and you built that program, I can just think back on some of the threats and incidents that we responded to, just in the time that I was there with you, I know you did far more than that, remarkable program that you built, and the interagency piece, you know, I had a chance to work uh, closely with you, and a lot of the, the preparedness work that we did at the time, connecting all those dots of the FBI, and the Department of State, and bringing all those partners in, and helping them understand DHS, and the private sector, which was still a brand new stakeholder in this intelligence community and this preparedness community. I mean, really, really pioneer efforts, you know, during your time there. So I really thank you for your leadership. And all I know is I got to the office early and I, I some days I left pretty late and I think I never beat you and I never left before. <laughs> you. So <laughs> I know, I know you and your family gave a lot during your time there. So really thank you for your service. Remarkable career. I mean, remarkable career. And, and the great thing is uh, you, you, know, you didn't just hang your hat up and call it a day, but you're still contributing in a lot of ways. So if we could, you know, since, since you've left DHS, you've been involved in a lot of activity to help reducing risks and increase preparedness for hostile events and active shooter threats, working to bolster security in the commercial facilities sector, a community that I'm very close with, and, and a lot more than that. Would you like to discuss sort of what you've been doing, taking all that experience that you've built up over those many years, and since retiring from government, a little bit about what you're doing now and how that's playing into helping to secure our environment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so it, it was a great um, experience and a great deal of um, learning, uh, you know, working with, uh, you know, in DHS and, and, you know, all the partners and the programs that we're able to do. So when I left government, um, I started my own uh, security and risk management consulting company. So it's Garter Risk Management. Um, you know, I've been doing this with a wide number of uh, government clients in the consulting capacity, um, components like you know Transportation Security Administration (TSA), where I'm doing work at the moment. I've done, you know, a great amount of work with uh, CISA, you know, uh, in different areas. Uh, continued to provide some support to OBP, Science and Technology Directorate at, at uh, DHS, and but also other, you know, other. Uh, uh, federal agencies like the FBI and like the Department of Defense have, you know, had some opportunities to continue doing some work there because of the foundational programs that we built at DHS that are now, you know, important for those federal agencies to get a better grasp of and to better integrate with with DHS on. So that's been that's been really helpful and dramatic, and um, it's it's included international partners as well. I mean, I started doing some international work. At DHS, work closely with the Brits and the Canadians. We had an actual detailee from uh, Canada assigned to our staff. It really looked at cross-border, you know, critical infrastructure issues. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Ottawa and and other you know other international partners, um, and particularly the work at NATO. And and that's carried me over to continue doing some some important work with some of those international partners as well. 
And a couple of years ago, just prior to COVID, I partnered with um, a colleague um, on another business called the Power of Preparedness, an e-learning company that provides customized training in workplace violence, prevention, active shooter, preparedness and response, de-escalation techniques, and you know other related training the, um, that addresses the problem that we are witnessing here in the United States with you know, just an increase in violence in the workplace, you know, the increase in mass shootings um, and the importance for organizations to enhance their preparedness for these kinds of threats um, that we're witnessing in the workplace. And it's very, I mean, you know, we, we dealt with critical infrastructure at DHS. Now I'm working with clients in the food retail industry because we're seeing, you know, you know an uptick, an increase in the number of violent you know, attacks and shootings that have taken place at grocery stores. And it's yeah. just one example of kind of the new dynamic and challenges that we're facing. So, you know, you're right. I've, you know, I've been very fortunate to leverage the experience I've had and to continue doing some consulting and training, you know, for, uh, you know, for very important clients trying to make a difference. Yeah, and you certainly are making a difference. You mentioned grocery stores. You, should, you, uh, you penned an article for the grocery community not too long ago. We'll include that in the show notes. And it, you've spent a lot of time, you know, whether it's domestically or some of those international partners in, in Canada, the UK and elsewhere, you know, looking at those commercial facilities, those softer targets that are so enticing to would-be attackers, whether they're you know, inspired by international terrorism or domestic extremism, they seem to focus on these same types of targets. And we've, we've spent a lot of time over the years you know, working with that sector. And we'll come back to that, I think, in just a little bit. But I'm glad you're out there. I'm glad you're you know, educating people, preparing people. We'll come back to power preparedness here in just a minute. But let's Let's hang out and talk about those hostile events for a minute. I think you bring a really, really interesting perspective to all this. You've seen a lot of threats evolve, spike, you know, diminish, change over the many years you've been involved in this, from, from the police force to DHS, your present consultancy roles. And just want to kind of get your thoughts on this. As we've come out of the COVID lockdowns, which in some sense seem like they were so long ago, but there have been a number of attempted and successful mass shootings across the country. And just to clarify for anybody listening, you know, that's not talking about the, the daily criminal activity that happens, you know, almost every day in our country. Right? There's shootings all the time, and that's, that's tragic enough in and of itself. But talking about deliberate mass shootings, mass casualty incidents where a lone attacker has sought out to kill as many innocent people as possible. And we've seen that, you know, occurring over the last year and a half, you know, or so, and, and certainly before covid but even as we record this today, it's the uh, 17th, I think, of August. And, and just in recent days, we've seen an attempt to attack the FBI facility in Cincinnati. We've seen an individual uh, drive his car into the U.S. Capitol fence and, and take his own life after shooting a few rounds off. And there are just two very recent examples, but there have been a lot more than that. And we're sitting here at a time right now, literally today, with a number of calls you know, of extremist rhetoric to attack the FBI, law enforcement, and others. So sort of taking all of these different threats in and looking at where we are today, a place that, as we were talking right before the reporting started, I don't think we were really anticipating, you know, eight or 10 years ago. From a threat standpoint, how do you assess the threat of loan actor terrorism? And what are your concerns and, or, or the concerns you'd encourage private sector security leaders to be thinking about as they go about their daily business? Yeah, great question. Um, we certainly are seeing an evolution of, uh, of the threat environment. And, um, you know, I stay in touch with um, my DHS and, and FBI colleagues and, and other federal partners. Um, and um, by and large, they're all, they all comment to me about, you know, Bill, we've, we've all been around since 9-11. We've all dealt with, uh, you know, evolving threats to the homeland, but we haven't seen anything, you know, this dynamics, you know, since, since you know, 9-11. It's really... Uh, uh, an evolving, dynamic, challenging environment. And so when we talk about terrorism, to your point, you know, we, we talk about the threat of foreign terrorist organizations, FTOs, um, and that, you know, that threat continues. I mean, we saw a grocery store shooting in Denver, Colorado, you know, last year in 2021, um, about two months after that shooting, Inspire magazine came out with a profile on the shooter, you know, um, highlighting the target, highlighting the selection of the weapon, um, not taking credit for the incident, but implying that that you know it was inspired, and certainly 
you know, talking about how this target was well chosen. And this is the kind of target that like-minded inspired jihadists should be, should be looking for. So, so the threat of foreign terrorist organizations and, and lone, you know, lone offenders, terrorists, you know, continues to be, you know, a concern, one that we've got to keep our eye on. But I think what we're, we're dealing with now in a very, very uh, concerning matter is the rise of domestic violent extremist groups and individuals. I mean, conspiracy theories have been around since Adam and Eve, for God's sakes. But, you know, what I think we're uniquely witnessing today is conspiracy theory extremism, you know, where individuals perceive a grievance, whether it's the federal government or, you know, some other, you know, organization, and they feel compelled to respond with some form of violence. And so that is something that, you know, I think is triggering a lot of the problems that we're seeing. And, and I think, you know, overlapping all of that has just been, you know, what we've all been faced with in society over the last couple of years. And that is, you know, people that are feeling mental stress going through depression, a number of issues that affects people's mental health. So whether it's, you know, the health care of your family, whether it's rising inflation and, and financial concerns, whether it's social unrest that we've witnessed going back to the tragic George Floyd incident right up to January 6th um, and the, the recent incidents that you just recalled, you know, you know, and people wake up today and say, you know, are we going to war with Russia? You know, so, so all of these kind of stressful dynamics, you know, overlay, you know, the, the, you know, the threats that we're seeing. And I think it's, it's causing a great deal of the violence that we're witnessing in the workplace and certainly some of the mass shootings that, um, that we're seeing, a, um, you know, an increase. And during COVID, ma most major crime categories went down, but, you know, mass shootings, active shooter incidents went up and we saw a record number of those uh, last year. And I think we're on pace to, you know, meet or exceed those numbers in 2022. So when I talk to my uh, private sector stakeholders, you know, I, I stress the importance of situational awareness yeah. and building, you know, intelligence awareness you know, with strong, strong connectivity with their local law enforcement and state and federal partners uh, and, and, and business groups as well. I mean, you can't be a, a silo. So if something's happening in a, in a community, in a, in, a, um, in a business that's in your area, district or contiguous, you know, you need to be aware, aware of those kind of things. So building those kind of, you know, networks and situational awareness uh, things are very important. You know, training and understanding, you know, what constitutes behavioral anomalies and, you know, what are the warnings and indicator signs, you know, I mean, every one of these incidents that we look at, you do a postmortem and look at the lessons learned, invariably we see there are, there were significant, you know, warning signs behaviorally and on social media that, you know, we may have done a better job of picking up on and interceding before, you know, tragic violence took place. Um, I think every organization's got to update their their risk assessment because the, the environment is different, the threats are different. You've got to stay consistent with um, with what the threat environment is to make sure that your risk plans are are appropriately updated. And then, you know, most importantly, foundationally, you know, training your staff, you know, training and exercising are critical. And uh, not just a, you know a subset of your organization where your security people are getting trained or your managers or your C-suite, it's really important that, you know, all your people get trained because your frontline associates, your frontline customer service people, salespeople and so forth, they're dealing with, you know, the public, they're dealing with patrons, they're dealing with people that are coming in and out of their facilities and they need the same kind of training and tools as well. And I think there are some things that the federal government, the federal partners in this environment should be doing doing as well. I, I did an op-ed recently with a friend and a colleague, Bob Kalaski, who I knew you know. Bob was a key member of the, the team at DHS, and, um, the predecessor to Scissor, and stayed there as the head of the National Risk Management Center. Um, he and I wrote an op-ed recently, and we specifically called out, spoke to the, the fact that mass shootings are a homeland security risk and need to be addressed with the same leadership, the same focus, determination, and coordination that um, was undertaken by federal agencies following the attacks on 9-11. And we made some specific recommendations in that regard, 
including empowering the Secretary of Homeland Security to be the domestic incident manager for protecting communities from mass shootings and leading a national prevention and protection effort in support of communities. We, um, we talk about building off the lessons 9-11 in addressing terrorism threats, applying them to the threat of domestic terrorism to include enhanced community level funding and partnerships and a public awareness campaign that updates the successful if you see something, say something approach. We talked about adding or expanding the success of the Office for Bombing Prevention within CISA to include work in addressing mass shootings and awareness programs about the dangers of military grade weapons um, as a weapon of destruction. We also talked about establishing joint mass shooting task forces in partnership with the FBI and ATF modeled after the very highly successful joint terrorism task forces, the JTTFs, with the objective of preventing and disrupting shootings by implementing the full range of resources available to identify, assist, and investigate individuals on a pathway to violence. You know, we talk about a number of things, you know, including, you know, the approaches to identifying the linkage between mental health issues and the pathway to violence and helping communities and schools in these areas. We really believe that this issue needs to be taken on head on with the strong leadership and coordination of DHS, uh, similar to what we did after 9-11. So you, you hit so much there, and uh, we'll, we'll include the link to that article in the show notes as well. You mentioned Bob. Bob, uh, I had the pleasure of speaking with him at the end of last year before he left uh, his federal service. Another, you know, smart guy, lots of great ideas, and, and really a, a public servant, similar to how you have been for many years. A lot of great points in there. You know, I, I hear what you're saying, and part of me just, I get frustrated because sometimes it's hard to get, you know, have a conversation about security without quickly becoming a political conversation, right? And, and that's, uh, that's a challenge of our environment today. We're going to, you know, we have to, part of the environment, we have to work through that. It's, it's a tough topic. But I want to go back for a minute to some of the things you talked about. You mentioned some really important things. You talked about the continuing international terrorist threat. And I think, you know, with so much focus on, you know, for whether it's Russia or COVID or, or extremism, you know, politics, people don't necessarily realize there's still arrests on a not infrequent basis of individuals tied back to the Islamic State, either you know, trying to get uh, funding to them or recruitment for them. We're planning attacks. I mean, that hasn't stopped, right? The fact there's new and emerging threats hasn't stopped the old ones from being present. These have been successful very much. And that's, that's a good story. But you know, I, I think people should keep in mind that that, that hasn't gone away. Um, not, not at all. I think it was just an arrest or a, or a uh, an incident recorded by DOJ this week for a call, and I'll share that as well. You talked about behavioral indicators. We've got a, a good mutual friend, Mark Carrera, who, who always likes to say, you know, you, you don't profile people, but you can profile behaviors, right? And I think it's such an important idea. And, and the government has put together good references on behavioral indicators. Those are things I think you've always advocated for and just being mindful of you know, those folks around you. So we'll, we'll share that link as well. You talked about postmortems and after actions. And we don't think we always talk about there is you don't have to wait for somebody to attack you, right? I mean, you can, you've led after actions on incidents to help others learn from incidents that have occurred. I think it's one of the great things organizations can do. And there's a shooting or, or whatever it might be. You can conduct an after action, a postmortem on, on somebody else's incident and still glean lessons learned for our own security organization. So, you know, a lot of great ideas that you mentioned there. I hope people listen to that and sort of process it. I've listened to it a couple of times. I know I will after this recording post. And uh, I'd like to go back and sort of think through some of the things you talked about there. But I want to pause. You mentioned a lot of recommendations that you and Bob, you know, put together that article for the federal government. But you've always been a thought leader in that space. You've always had an appreciation for the challenging relationship between you know, departments, DHS, the FBI, other government partners. It's, it is complicated. Any any thoughts or recommendations for what some of those government agencies should be doing, you know, right now for our current threat environment? You'd like to share in addition to what you've already shared. Well, I would just echo, you know, the, the point that you that you started with here was that um, the same threats, the same security concerns we had pre-COVID um, exist today. And um, in fact, in many cases, um, they're significantly greater. Um, one of the concerns that I've had is that, you know, during dealing with a global pandemic, um, and the focus of, of organizations of getting back up and running, particularly mass gathering facilities and, and you know, restaurants or any place that people gathered, 
you know, their focus has been on safety very appropriately. It's got to be a safe environment. People want to feel like there's, you know, good hygiene and, and, and facilities are safe to, to uh, go back and attend and participate in again. And so a lot of resources have gone towards the safety side of things. And now we're into a pre-COVID era, you know, getting back to normal. Um, we can't take our eye off the ball on the security because, again, the same threats were there, probably even greater. And that's one of my concerns is that a lot of the resources have been devoted to safety. And uh, I think security has taken somewhat of a hit in that regard. So, you know, we try to reinforce and, and encourage those things. Um, you know, both with our private sector and, and our federal partners, particularly with DHS, you know, making the resources available, um, you know, responding to real world incidents so that um, they can be sharing information. You know, Andy, when we were there, I mean, if we had an incident that, of any significance that took place, I mean, we were immediately you know, putting our heads together, okay, setting up, who do we need to be pulling together for a, for a conference call? What, what should we be doing at the classified level? What can we do at the unclass level? Who's working on a tear line? Are there some things we want to bring people into a skiff for? When we had the uh, terrible uh, mall attack in Nairobi, Kenya, I think that was 2013. Right. I remember being on the uh, deck of my house in Alexandria, Virginia, and getting a call from uh, Secretary Beers at the time. And, and, and Beers said to me, Bill, um, I'm briefing the president on Tuesday. This was a Sunday morning, briefing the president on Tuesday with the FBI director. I need five slides on what, uh, what, what we've learned from the Nairobi attack, what we've been doing with the you know, retail, um, mass gathering, you know, malls, community, um, and what do we want, what actions do we want to take now that we're in October and we have, you know, uh, Black Friday and the Christmas holiday shopping season upon us. And so here I am on a Sunday, I got to put five slides together and I've got to do it with the, with the FBI. Um, but we managed that. And part of what we did was we identified through our analysis, the top 500 shopping malls in the United States. We put our PSAs and our local FBI field offices together, went out and briefed people um, at those local levels about the threat and talked about what security best practice should be in place. Meanwhile, the assistant director and myself went out and visited all of the major mall owners, Simon Properties, Westbrook, and we went to the corporate headquarters so that we ensured that from a leadership perspective, you know, they were aware of what we were concerned about and what we were looking to execute. And we needed their support to get the message out to their, to their individual, you know, field offices, field uh, facilities. And so that's the kind of nimbleness and response that, you know, I'm concerned about. And, uh, and I think, you know, we, we've got to see happening. Certainly there's a lot of focus on cyber, and, and we know the importance of that. We know the threat is there, you know, from a nation state perspective, from a, a, ha a hacktivist perspective and criminal activities, but we can't take our eye off the ball on, on physical security. Um, and we've got to have the nimbleness and the ability to communicate with our stakeholders, um, you know, almost in real time so that they can respond to these kinds of incidents that we're seeing more and more. Yeah, so you, you again, you had so many interesting points. I just want to talk to two of those you know it's funny you used the the westgate mall shooting in, in, in nairobi i was on the other side of the fence at that time supporting real estate isaac and i remember i was, I was at my sister's for a barbecue and uh that started happening and then i found myself you know sitting with the uh, washington football game on in front of me in front of my laptop responding sort of to what was happening here and that actually was captured in uh, one of dhs's documents as a, as a as an information sharing success between the government and the re and the real estate isaac you know, for that information sharing and awareness and collaboration. I'll, I'll share that in the show notes as well. It's one of the, uh, my favorite stories of good collaboration. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the complexities of, of why and how we report on these incidents, but, but there's, a, there's a time when the government and, and organizations like the ISAC and ISAC community have to sort of raise awareness of ongoing incidents until we understand what the threat is. And then we can do things that you talked about, going out and educating, informing, and preparing people. And 
yeah, I think that that it, you know, unfortunately, you know, I think there is some uh, short-term memory loss of how important some of that is. The other you know, thing you touched on, you, know, you talked about the importance of you know, cybersecurity, absolutely. You know, physical security, absolutely. And what I always like to remind people is, you know, Mother Nature is still the greatest killer out there, right? She, she's sure. still the roughest one of all of them. And I remember, again, under your leadership, serving uh, for a number of hurricane incidents. I remember racing down for a, uh, there's a, uh, I think it was an earthquake and a tsunami threat to Hawaii. And so yeah. I remember being there on a Saturday, you know, just waiting for what do we need to do? And, and sort of that emergency response preparedness mentality is so critical. And I really appreciate, you know, what we got to do there and supporting some of those missions. And they're still out there, right? Whether there's a brand new report just came out talking about potential catastrophic flooding in central California, a, a possible event. We're seeing some pretty significant flooding in Las Vegas. We've seen that in, in New York, you know, places we haven't, Kentucky, you know, and uh, these incidents are real. Right now, getting ready for the, the hot part of hurricane season, something's going to land, you know. So I think those are still very important muscles to train and exercise and be ready for because, Again, we've lost more lives to Mother Nature than anybody else right now. So yes. anyhow, uh, I know you know these things. So if there's thanks for your patience with me. No, but it's, a, it's very important to the point that you that you raised. And we got to remember, this is an all hazards uh, risk environment. So, right. you know, we're seeing, you know, Mother Nature, climate change and other things that, that are impacting, uh, you know, other elements of the risk environment that are very important. Yeah. And we, we talk about blended threats, you know, gate 15. And we saw a good example of that where severe heat was causing uh, network issues to the healthcare sector in, in the UK. And that's part of that, you know, all has approach. We need to sort of understand, think through, prepare for, so we can do all those things we want to do and, and maintain those operations. But let me continue on uh, for the sake of time. I know we can spend a lot of time talking about these things, but let's talk about preparedness. We, we've touched on a number of times. At Gate 15, we like to say, understand the threats, assess the risks, and take action. And you talk about threats, uh, but you're you're doing a lot in the preparedness space or that left of boom space, as we like to say, some of which we've been able to collaborate on by our hostile events preparedness program and your work with the power of preparedness that you mentioned earlier. Um, still appreciate that partnership and then we'll share links to that as well. And through our collaboration together with organizations like the International Association of Venue Managers, can you share on some of those activities, preparedness types activities and some of your thoughts on preparedness and what that means to stakeholders? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and certainly, you know, we deeply appreciate, you know, our relationship and partnership with uh, Gate 15 and, and highly, your highly successful hostile events preparedness program, which, you know, I have used and referenced uh, many times um, and given attribution to, you know, when I've spoken at different, at different conferences. So, um, you know, kudos to you and your team for the great uh, work that you continue to do. Thank you. Um, you know, the National Institute for the Prevention of Workplace violence uh, has done a study and, and is an interesting nugget that came out of that was that the cost of reacting after a serious incident has occurred is a hundred times more costly than taking preventive actions, you know, ahead of time beforehand. And yeah. so, you know, people, you know, oftentimes say the likelihood or probability of an event happening is low. Um, and they look at that sole element of risk as opposed to the full spectrum of risk and looking at you know, the consequences of an, of an event, um, the vulnerabilities um, that, that we have in many areas and, and not you know, when, you know, leveraging the fact that, you know, I would say the probability in many of these things is growing, but you know, again, a lot of organizations view the, the risk of certain things like a like an active shooter incident happening as, as a low probability and, and aren't doing the kind of things that I believe they need to be doing because the consequences are so grave if some of those things happen. So, you know, like you, I am doing a lot of good work with associations like the International Association of Venue Managers. Um, we're doing work with the Food Industry Association, FMI. They represent the food retail industry. And as we just alluded to a little earlier, we've seen a, a tremendous number of increases in incidents happening um, in grocery stores. Um, the Buffalo shooting, I think, is a, a litmus test and a case study. And it ties into your, you know, your um, hostile events preparedness. You look at a situation where an individual conducted extensive research. 
He was targeting an African-American, you know, black community. Um, he focused on one particular target in that community, um, did his pre-operational surveillance, you know, went to the site, actually, you know, drew up images, six photos. He was stopped and questioned because of his suspicious behavior. Now, rather than moving on to, to another target, which is generally the pattern in, in many cases when an adversary is conducting surveillance, if they feel like you know, security is such that they may have a difficult time to move on to another target, right. this individual went back, came full body armor, you know, um, military style weapons, and you know, undertook his attack and actually confronted an armed security guard. And so that's a that's a paradigm change, you know, for me because you've got a, a, an armed security guard at a grocery store and you still have an attack of that of that magnitude. And just like Uvalde, Texas, with the incident there at the school, you know, these military style weapons and and the and the evolution of body armor, it just it makes it you know all that more challenging. So, you know, I've written um, active assailant. Uh, best practices for preparedness and response for the um, Food Industry Association. We've got a likewise strong uh, affiliation with the Restaurant Loss Prevention and Security Association, RLPSA. We do a lot of work in the um, utility industry. Utilities are seeing a, um, a big uptick in the violence against their field-based workers that are operating in the field, um, that are dealing with, you know, homeless people, but also dealing with um, aggressive customers when you've got military shut, uh, military uh, utility shutoffs. Yeah. You know, COVID, there was a, a waiver, you know, on paying your utility bill. Uh, many governors issued executive orders. Well, you know, those waivers have uh, uh, expired and, you know, you have to make arrangements now to, to back pay, you know, the amount that you owe utility companies. So, you know, many, many cases, there's, there's an uptick in violence. So we're working with Aegis, which is the um, insurance provider for, you know, about, you know, 80% of the uh, utility companies in the United States. And we look at those as important channel partners. Certainly we do one-off uh, work with, uh, you know, organizations, but gives us an ability to reach mass gathering, you know, facilities, grocery chains, restaurant chains, utility workers. We're doing work in schools and some hospitals. And, you know, and our approach has been to try to work with the organizations that have the tentacles to reach, you know, many, many of their members so that you can have a greater impact and, and uh, you know, and, and improve the security and, and, and safety of, uh, you know, many thousands of employees. Yeah, that, that, that's great work. It's so important, right? Just educating them, preparing them, helping them think through what they should be doing, need to be aware of it. I really appreciate the fact that you're out there turning across those different industries and communities. And again, we'll share some of those links in the show notes. And I want to pause, I want to go back to something we've talked about a little bit, but not, not specifically. So I want to go back to behavioral indicators a little bit. A lot of the time we talk about preparedness from, a, I mentioned earlier, like a, like a right of boom perspective, meaning after the incident. But I know we're both big believers in trying to prevent those incidents from happening. And that's a lot of the work you're describing, trying to educate people so they're aware of those things. And in December of last year, 2021, the National Counterterrorism Center, the FBI, and DHS updated their 2019 guidance and released the 2021 U.S. Violent Extremist Mobilization Indicators Booklet. And I'm going to quote from that here. And again, I'll share this link as well. But it states, uh, provides the document itself provides a catalog of observable behaviors that could signal whether individuals or groups are pursuing ideology-motivated violent extremist activities. In case 15, we've discussed that a lot in our training and the hospitals attack cycle white papers we developed. What are your thoughts on best practices regarding left of boom indicators of potential violence, right? Without, it's a difficult area. Some people are concerned about, you know, should I report? And am I, am I, am I, is this just a bias or are we targeting certain populations? But there's a real mission there. There's real, a real need there. So any thoughts on best practices for security leaders and organizations? I think the, I think the key element of that, um, you know, left the boom uh, is is um, realizing that, and there's statistics from the FBI and the Secret Service and so forth on this. But you know, it's extremely rare that someone just wakes up, snaps, and decides that they're going to commit a mass shooting. Um, these individuals are on a pathway to violence. Right. You know, and it's on that pathway that there are road signs or warning signs and indicators. 
um, that someone is in need of assistance or help and that, you know, ideally you want to get them the, the mental health support that they need. But, you know, there are times when their warning and indicators um, are extreme and, and, and potentially violent. And, you know, we just learn time and again that as we do a postmortem on these things, you know, yeah, there's social media uh, chatter on this. There, you know, there were, you know, family, coworkers, you know, relatives, friends that observed things and heard things. And, um, you know, they just didn't take it serious enough or they were reluctant about reporting it. I think it's a cultural thing that, that organizations, you know, have to train and, 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 you know, make sure that people are not profiling, but they're profiling behavior. Yeah. And that they understand that, you know, people, you know, ideally we want to get them help. But, you know, when people are on a pathway like that, they, they need assistance. I'll give you another real world example. And I just did an interview with a, a Boston TV station recently. And this was a, a facility where a worker came back after lunch. Uh, apparently, uh, he was having a frustrating day for some reason, but he came back after lunch and um, was having some difficulty punching back in on the time clock. And his frustration uh, got louder and he made a threat that he was gonna go home, get a gun and come back and just do a mass shooting. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously an employee overheard that, realized the seriousness of the, the statement, reported it to the manager, the manager, in turn, you know, had a meeting and conversation with the employee. That employee was terminated. And then it took five and a half hours for the facility to notify law enforcement. And um, when law enforcement was notified, they went to the individual's home, young man, and uh, determined there were, in fact, firearms in the, in the house. Um, he had some, you know, some mental challenges um, and he was put under arrest because the threat he made, you know, was an arrestable offense and he was charged with the misdemeanor. But the gap of five and a half hours from the time your employee has observed or listened to something that is an anomaly and reports it also means that you have to have the procedures and policies in place to report that information take every set threat seriously. This individual facility had to go up to their corporate chain to get approval before they could actually, you know, make a report to a law enforcement agency. And, you know, we know obviously that five and a half hours is unacceptable and, you know, something really dire could have happened in that time frame. So, you know, having the policies in place is equally important to, you know, making sure that, you know, your people are trained in situational awareness employees are the best ones to know what their baseline is, what's normal in their environment and what's abnormal and you know what's suspicious and what constitutes suspicious behavior and how, how to go about reporting that. Certainly if someone comes into a facility, leaves a backpack and leaves, you know that's suspicious behavior. And if you observe that, you have to take appropriate steps and you have to have the policies in place to make sure that that's you know, you have either evacuation procedures in place, you can report that to the appropriate law enforcement authorities and so forth. So those are the kind of things that, that we stress with our clients, the situational awareness, you know, the training, the policies and procedures in your emergency plans uh, and your close, you know, your close communication network with uh, law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, you, you, again, you hit so much in there. I think, you know, you think about those five and a half hours, we've seen incidents over the years where somebody's either terminated or otherwise frustrated and, and they've come back much faster than that to take action on either their employer or others in that you know, place of business. And that's tragic to see. Thank goodness somebody had the situation awareness to report it. And just like you spoke about, it's not, it's not just that, but you have to have the whole problem in place, right? It's an all hands you know, plan, you know, human resources involved, security is involved, leadership is involved. You gotta make sure that everybody needs to understand their role responsibilities and do that in a timely manner to, to mitigate the chance of, of a tragic incident occurring. So, you know, we love that, a lot, a lot of great points in there. Um, and again, I'll share some of the references. I'll encourage folks to check out our white paper, check out the NCTC uh, Behavioral Indicators Guide. There's some great resources at the FBI where they've looked at mass shootings and gathered some data. There's a lot out there. You just take somebody to you know, take the time, understand it, share with an organization, develop the plans, build the procedures, 
train, exercise. And if you need help, there's champions like Bill out there, our team's out there, and, and we want to help. Um, we want to make sure you've got what you need to be effective. And that goes to organizations at all levels. But Bill, I want to bring it back to another real world example. I want to be um, I'm going to be deliberately vague, right? But, but I want to talk about something that was shared with me that I'd love to get your thoughts on. It's happened a little while back. So I'd, I'd like to get your take on this. A colleague brought to me an incident that's occurring in their organization. A senior leader of their large international organization had taken some pretty strong positions on a, a high visibility divisive topic. There was concern that individuals that may disagree with the executive's opinions could post threats or take action and conduct physical violence against the organization and individuals within the organization who may be public. So if they're out at an event or wherever it might be. As we look around today, and we still see this sort of short fuse uh, in a lot of people and a lot of our conversations and a lot of divisiveness across our country with monkeypox concerns, with election season, with us uh, still dealing with COVID and, and, you know, in schools and workplaces, some of those challenges, other potentially divisive topics. Any thoughts, guidance, or best practices you'd recommend security professionals who may find themselves in a similar situation? They're trying to manage security with some high-risk situations, high-visibility individuals. How do you go about trying to help secure your organization in that situation? It's a great question, Andy. And, and certainly in the, uh, in the uh, kind of stressful uh, uh, social political environment we're in, I think we're seeing more and more of these cases, you know, with big brand companies, you know, whether it's Starbucks, Chick-fil-A or others. I mean, it's not right or wrong. It's just that, you know, more and more corporations and brands are expressing public support or opposition, you know, to some of these issues. Um, and so whether intentionally or not, you know, a CEO expresses their, you know, their stance on, on an issue that could be controversial, you know, their company becomes aligned with those views. Yeah. And, and so um, I'm not saying, you know, we should muzzle people from speaking out. I think there is an obligation, um, you know, for leaders to speak out appropriately. Um, and so I'll offer a couple of thoughts both what a, a company in general should be doing when they want to speak out on on kind of hot button issues, and then specifically what I think some security uh, personnel should be keeping in mind is as we you know deal with some of these kinds of issues. So I mean, in terms of you know how do you how do you address social or political issues in the workplace? Um, you know, I would suggest that you know if if an organization is going to speak out on an issue that they tell their employees first. Um, you know, make them aware of, of, of you know, your position, your stance, or, or, you know, what you intend to speak about. Explain your position and your rationale, you know, for, for doing that, you know, and encourage respectful disagreement. You know, I mean, you know, we're, we're all about having a dialogue, but it should be done in a very respectful way. Um, obviously, discourage arguments, um, and but consider creating, you know, kind of a, you know, uh, forums where, you know, people can talk about some of these issues. I think that's healthy. And, and the appropriate way. But I think that, you know, you know, kind of educating and working to your workforce can be helpful in preparing um, your organization um, to some of the media attention and other things that, that might result as, as, a, as an element of that. You know, for security people, um, you know, when these somewhat controversial issues, you know, come up, um, I think that you know there are some there are some issues and concerns that you've got to you know keep in mind and and kind of have in your toolkit. You know, number one, do you have an executive protection program? You know, for your CEO or, or your C-suite. I mean, many big organizations do offer executive protection. You know, when they're you know senior people travel and and so forth. Um, and, but you know, you, you need to re-examine that if. You're dealing with some hot button issues and you're getting attention on social media and you may be getting some threats or uh, negative uh, comments and so forth. But I would also include not just, you know, the, the principal's uh, travel, but, you know, potentially their residents and their family members. And so as a security director, I'm keeping that in the back of my mind when some of this kind of thing is happening. Do I have the resources in place? Can I serve that capability if I need to? Um, again, depending upon the credibility of the threat. Um, obviously, you know, enhanced coordination with your partners, your law enforcement, your intelligence gathering. I am a big proponent of social media awareness or social media monitoring. 
Um, I'll give you one quick example. Um, I have a client, a client does social media awareness. Um, there was some um, uh, protest taking place in a certain area of Manhattan. And on social media, they were talking about moving the protest to a financial institution um, because of the capability of having this monitoring you know, service. They were able to be notified very quickly that you know, there was an effort to mobilize the protest to the site and the site was able to shut down, you know, uh, shelter in place, you know, evacuate if need be, but to, in essence, prevent, you know, something happening while the place was open for business and, and people were coming and going. So there's, I think, tremendous value in having a good social media uh, awareness uh, capability. And, and many of them are really not that expensive in terms of, you know, the scope of security assets you might be looking at. Um, you know, just reviewing and updating, you know, all your security protocols for your facilities, particularly, you know, your perimeter and your access control. And so, you know, when, when something like that happens, I'm, I'm, I'm monitoring what's happening on social media. I'm, I'm making sure I've got search capabilities for executive protection, and I'm paying particular attention to my perimeter and access control issues. There's, there's again, a lot of goodness in, in what you shared there. I appreciate all that. I mean, with the social media piece, right, just a few minutes of, of, of forewarning can allow us to take action that could potentially save lives, you know, protect our properties, draw down that risk, you know, and then those minutes, minutes make a difference uh, when things can escalate and, and tensions can rise. So, you know, there's a lot of great points in there. I hope folks really listen to some of what you shared and sort of meditate on that, think about what they could do in their organization. I just heard an interview recently, you know, and think about sort of the leadership responsibility. Um, John Mackey, the founder and CEO of Whole Foods, uh, used to be pretty vocal in, in some of his opinions. I think he got reeled in by his board at one point said sort of said, hey, you know, let's let's manage sort of the communication a little bit more. And he's about to retire. And he, he said how he's looking forward to being sort of unshackled, right? He can speak freely. But when we are in those leadership uh, roles and responsibilities that we have, we do have to be sort of aware of you know, the impacts of our positions and advocacy on our organizations, on our, you know, our community, those that work with us and for us. So a lot of really good points there, Bill. Thank you very much. So I could ask you so many questions. You've seen so much, you know so much. I don't have time to ask you everything that I'd like to, but any final thoughts on security you just want listeners to think about? Well, I'll footstop, you know, a couple. Um, I would just, um, you know, kind of emphasize the fact that, you know, we're in this business. We know there's no security. There's no perfect security plan. We know that we can't eliminate risk, that we've got to work smartly um, and, and focus our attention and resources where the risk is the greatest where the consequences are potentially the greatest, and and I think that's you know the smart way that that um, security directors you know are are spending their time and a focus and resources. But I'll footstop you know making sure your assessments are current. You know time and again you know we, we deal with with clients and they haven't updated their assessment for several years. They're really not reflective of you know what we're seeing in the in the current threat environment. They're really not. You know, updating their operations plans to, you know, to be able to evacuate shelter in place, you know, if there is social unrest or some kind of activity taking place that can impact their employees. Um, again, developing those strong partnerships and relationships and improving your, your awareness and intelligence gathering, you know, training and, and training your people and exercising, you know, and, and I guess finally, I would encourage organizations to develop a culture of security. You know, this is not about being paranoid. You know, it's about designing facilities with security in mind. It's about empowering people and training them, you know, with the tools that they need. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, having people be aware of, of the, you know, culture of security. Uh, it's going to impact and improve their lives, you know, whether at work or whether or not. You know, I've dealt with a number of companies and they said, you know, we went through this whole DHS Safety Act effort you know, which provides, uh, you know, limit uh, protections, liability protections for companies that meet a high standard. And what they told me was, you know, that process helped us elevate our day-to-day, -day, you know, safety and security. The things that we're doing now, we, we weren't focused on before or weren't so laser focused on. So, you know, we've reduced the number of accidents we've had. We've reduced the number of low-level, you know, crimes that we've had. We've reduced a number of issues just because, you know, our culture has changed and, and our mindset has changed. I spoke to a, a good FBI colleague of mine 
And he was involved with some of the interrogations that took place of terrorists in Guantanamo Bay. And I, and I categorized his comment as uh, the three C's. He said, Bill, the thing that deters the bad guy is um, what I call cops, canines, and cameras. <laughs> and when I say cops, I'm talking about, you know, a uniform security presence, um, ideally with a firearm, but, you know, that's not practical in, in every environment. But the, but the, the, um, the, the takeaway here is a visible security presence you know, is a deterrent. Um, cameras are a deterrent. Yep. And certainly canines are, are a deterrent. And so, you know, when we look back, you know, to 2015, when they had the bombing um, in Paris at the soccer stadium and at the um, Performing Arts Center and the cafes, yep. that was, a, that was a, um, a turning point. I mean, all of the major sports leagues in the United States said, you know, if it can happen there, it can happen here. And so we've changed the culture. And years ago, we would have thought, you know, impossible to go through, you know, a bag search, you know, entering, a, you know, um, a baseball game, you know, or um, a magnetometer, um, or to see explosive detection canine teams, you know, patrolling, um, you know, all of those things were, you know, kind of out of our, our mindset. But now they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, we've come to live with it and, and right. you know, organizations have done it efficiently and they've given people a sense that, you know, you can come in here and enjoy, you know, um, a program or a show or a game and feel safe and secure. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not saying every organization needs to do that, but the culture has changed in some of the high risk venues here. And I think more and more organizations need to be taking a look at their culture and what are the things that they need to be doing to enhance their safety and security. Yeah, I love that. There's again so much in what you what you shared. We we, we both uh, have helped the uh, we talked about International Association of Venue Managers earlier, and they've got a great program. If you're a venue security leader, uh, the Academy for Venue Safety and Security talks to a lot of those types of things that Bill just spoke about. Um, there's you know I'm a big fan of of going out to events. Right? I love sports events. I love taking my family to sports events. I love live music, and I, we've seen the evolution of that security where. I mean, I love going to an NFL game and you you hardly notice the security that's in place, but you know that the facility is secure. And that's what I want. Because when I go out as a as a you know sports fan, I don't want to think about security. I want to enjoy the time. And I know somebody else has that responsibility. And I think sports leagues, maybe especially, have done a great job of stepping up and taking that mission on. And you, know, you talk about culture of security. And then we talk a lot about here at Gate 15. My, my, my friend and teammate Dave Pounder likes to talk about a culture of preparedness. And he loves using the term security mindfulness. You know, however we phrase it, I think it's just so important to sort of bake that into our team that just like we have, you know, ethics and values and, and goals, we also have some kind of security awareness, however we phrase it, however we capture it, but it's just so important to build that into the DNA of our organizations. Bill, thank you. You shared a lot. I'm going to try and share some of the references that you've mentioned, but there's so much. It's always great to hear from you. I'm going to, I'm going to pivot. Now, this is a part of the show where we break from the serious talk and security talk and just get to know a little bit more about you. You've done a lot of professional things and remarkable things, but you're human too, right? You like to do other things. So just want to take a second to think about it. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Your job is just to sort of put it out there, whatever comes to mind. So you feel ready for that? Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> All right. So, so I'm a big sports fan. I want to ask you, do you have a, do you have a favorite sports team? Well, um, you know, I've got I've got a number of um, of teams that that I love watching, um, and so obviously I'm a I'm a New York kid. You know, I, I grew up, um, you know, watching baseball and, and football and basketball and going to Yankee Stadium and 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 the Madison Square Garden. You know, but I, I have to say that my favorite sports team is the Yankees. I've been a diehard Yankee fan. You know, I've lived through some some tough years, but you know. Um, um, you know, they're playing really well this year and I hope they make the playoffs in the World Series. But, you know, uh, without a doubt, the New York Yankees are, are my, my team. And, and when I talk to people, they, they generally pick up pretty quickly. I'm, uh, I'm not from North Carolina, although I live here now. They, uh, they, they know I'm a, I'm a northern boy from uh, either, you know, somewhere in uh, New England or New York. Yeah, you know, the Yankees are a love team by a lot of people, hated by a lot of people. If you ever heard Dave Pounder and I talk on our podcast, uh, we often argue, you know, my argument is that uh, I tell him that baseball is not even a sport. He's a, he's a diehard baseball fan. I'm not. So I, I, I give him my grief about that. But right, can I ask you a Giants fan, too? I am a Giants fan. It's been painful, uh, you know, but but, uh, but I am a Giants fan. And, you know, um, you know, I, I watch the games. Um, I follow the Cougars, 
you know, while I'm down here, the Panthers rather, you know, the, now that I'm down here, I still, I still like to watch the, the Washington generals, uh, or the commanders. Um, yeah. so, you know, um, love football in general and, and, you know, giants continue to keep a soft spot in my heart. You know, when we were doing the, uh, the racking and stacking of assets, you know, aligning to different sectors. I used to kid people that Yankee Stadium didn't belong in commercial facilities. It belonged in monuments and icons. <laughs> <laughs> National treasure. Yeah. National treasure. Um, I'm, I'm a Lions fan. I'm looking forward to the Lions playing the Giants this year. I'm actually uh, going to that game. I'm excited to see the Lions get that win. But we'll move on before I, before I get in trouble. Here, so um, do, you, do you have any pets? Any favorite pets or animals walking around? Um, yeah, you know, I I I, um, I love pets, and you know we're a dog family. Um, you know we've always had uh, different dogs, different breeds. Um, I have two um, Havanese dogs nice. now. So um, some people are familiar with them, some are not. Um, it's the um, national dog of Havana, um, but they're kind of like a, a golden doodle, but on a much smaller scale. But um, Great, uh, great, lovable dogs. I have two of those. And during COVID, you know, one of my uh, pet projects was to uh, to build out my uh, build out a fish tank. I had one when I was a kid. You know, it takes a lot of a lot of attention. Yeah. But you know, during COVID, you know, being in the home, not traveling at all, you know, gave me an opportunity to, to put together a nice uh, fish tank in my office. So um, you know, um, that's another element of, uh, of pets that I enjoy uh, at the moment. keeps me keeps me relaxed you know, playing and taking care of them. Yeah, I agree. I've got, we've got two dogs and a cat here. And uh, even though half the time they're driving me crazy, I, I love having them. I love taking a break and just uh, being with them. And it, it helps me in a lot of ways mentally and, and just calming down at times when things get stressful. So appreciate it. I, I imagined you with two retired uh, you know, uh, uh, shepherds or something like that, you know, by the <laughs> chew off the bad guy's face here and makes a mistake of coming to your home. <laughs> but last one, Bill, it's not like you've already talked to us a little bit with some of the things you might have liked to have done, but, you know, you, you do work with some high stress topics. You've spent, a, you know, careers uh, dealing with very high stress situations. What do you like to do to relax, to get away from some of that stress? Yeah, you know, um, work-life balance is really important. Um, and, and I've learned that, you um, I've learned it particularly since I've uh, left government, you know, um, you know, DHS, you know, you know, you're working in a stressful environment there. I mean, you know, it's obvious, you know, just there's so much happening and it's, you know, 24 seven. Um, but you don't really uh, appreciate how much stress and what a pressure cooker it was until you're actually away from it. And, you know, you get to take a breath and, you know, work and deal with things without, you know, uh, a constant, you know, multitasking, you know, barrage of issues. So I think it's important to have a good work-life balance. I, I make it a point to, um, to do active, uh, you know, exercising every day, you know, cardio, weights. Um, that's part of my daily regime. Um, I'm, a, I'm an outdoors guy. You know, I, I do love the, the, the ocean and the water sports. Um, you know, I'm in a coastal area. So kayaking is, is, a, is a big area of interest to me. Uh, plenty of intercoastal waterways down here that uh, that I enjoy, and then you know fishing as well. You know you've got inshore, you know deep sea pier fishing, you know uh, surf casting. Um, those I find relaxing um, and and kind of you know you know build your health, mental and physical, you know well being. Yeah, hundred percent. I shared a lot of the same uh, activities and, and passions, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you're still doing that and. I look forward to today. Maybe I'm not quite multitasking as much as I am right now, but that's still maybe 20 or 30 years away from me. But I, I appreciate the idea of it being out there. So thank you for sharing a little about who you are, about what you like to do. It's nice to know there's a, like I said, there's a human behind the uh, security professional that you you are and that you exemplify. Bill, before we wrap up, open floor, anything you want to throw out there, promote about what you're doing, organizations you're working with, anything you want to share. It's a you know, deep, dark secret you've held in your heart these last many years. I'm not judging you in any way. Anything you want to throw out there? I mean, you know, I, I would just, you know, would like to um, encourage people, you know, to, to, to do that evaluation of your risk. I mean, um, I think what we are doing at the power preparedness in terms of, you know, workplace violence and, and you know, active assailant uh, preparedness and response and so forth is, is customized. And what I learned um, is that, you know, a lot of the uh, methodology and, 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 you know, kind of the, uh, 
the approaches to, to these efforts are, you know, kind of industry agnostic, you know, kind of same principles apply, you know, regardless of the environment you're in. That's about 80%. But there's a very unique, important 20% um, that really resonates with your employees. So if you're in a healthcare facility, obviously, you know, the dynamic and the environment there is unique. You've got patients. If you're in a school setting, you've got students. I mean, there's a whole different dynamic um, as to how you react, respond, and so forth in those environments. And you can't do a cookie cutter approach because, you know, people just, it's not conducive to adult learning theory. You know, we, we focus on, you know, very short videos followed by a, a one question quiz to keep the ping pong match going and keep people engaged and, and keeping it very dynamic, but um, it's customized, you know, with the language, with the imagery, with the scenarios, you know, based to, the industry and, and to the actual uh, you know brand or company in, involved and um, if anybody's interested please feel free to reach out to us and um, I, I'm, I'm you know free advice whatever you know I'm always here and, and you know Andy's a great resource and you know I love connecting and staying in touch with him on things and I appreciate the work that Gate 15 is doing and I'm just uh, you know really proud to be aligned with them. Sir th thanks so much Bill it's, uh, thank you for your leadership thanks for your support your encouragement and for all you're doing every day over the many years in the past and what you're still doing out there today to champion security, awareness, preparedness, being able to be really safe and secure in, our, in what we're doing every day. Appreciate it. Appreciate you greatly. Thanks for taking the time out to join me and, and thanks for all you continue to do to help secure our country and, and all the people as we go out and try and enjoy our, our environment. So really appreciate it. And for all those that are listening, thanks for being a part of our Gate 15 community. This Gate 15 interview is my monthly interview with fantastic guests like Bill a champion really in our industry and, and great to have a chance to talk with him and visit today. Please check out our other Gate 15 podcasts. I mentioned those earlier in the show. Please subscribe, listen, and share your ideas and other feedback. Reach out to us on Twitter, LinkedIn, by email at podcast at gate15.global. And if you need to get in touch with Bill, uh, I'll have some links. You can certainly reach out to us and we can connect to you as well. Until next time, have fun and try and be at least somewhat reasonably safe. Bill, thank you very much. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. Be safe.